Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. Hey, Andy. Hey. We we go international again. I'm I'm finally taking advantage of what we said right at the beginning of lockdown, which was, "Hey, we're recording remotely. Why don't we just try and grab all the people in Britain and elsewhere who I hadn't been able to get until this point because they're on the opposite side of an ocean oh, to our recording no. equipment, and we're doing it now. And it's it's the amazing Marcus Brigstock. Hey, Marcus. Hey, guys. Hello, how are I'm you? In, uh, well, I'm fine. I'm in southwest London, uh, and it's cold and dark here, but but there is hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the British uh, way. Yes. There's always hope, old chap. We're not happy unless it's slightly cold and dark. Yeah. If it's, if it's sunny, that's suspicious. Yeah, What's yeah. it planning? Exactly. I mean, when I said it's cold and dark, it is midday here, so I, no, <laughs> none of us know why this is happening. But, uh, you know, I, I shan't be daunted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for whatever it brings. Exactly. Do your worst. This, this is the new Brexit Britain. Of course the sky's <laughs> gone black. They said this would happen. It's teething problems. <laughs> Where are we in in Brexit? By the way, I should know this, but like, what what phase of how, we how? we have fully exited the European Union with a um, with a cobbled together very very bad deal that just before they made it, they were uh, sure that there would be no deal, which would have been catastrophic. And compared to that, this is better. So everyone's going, see, see, it's much better than the thing we threatened to do. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. In, in like um, Robert McKee story terms, it, we're at the all hope is lost phase of the <laughs> story. <laughs> mm. Are you yeah. seeing changes in like prices of things you buy every day at all? Like, are, are there, are not yet. I mean, there are empty shelves in lots of shops. There's loads of stuff not arriving. And, and there's, there's... there's stories of people trying to order stuff online from Europe yeah. where... They, they've had to not do it because the delivery website has said, okay, and an extra £30. Yeah, yeah. There's loads of that. And there's also loads of companies just going, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not doing this anymore. It's European companies going, yeah, no, it's too hard. Sorry, it's not worth our time. Bye. Damn. Um, so, you know. But it's not as fun I'm, as we all thought it would be. What's that, mate? So it's not as fun as we all thought it would be. It's not yet, but hey, look, there's the Festival of Britain to come next year, and and we're all oh, is that we a all thing? Feel really good about. Oh yeah, that is a thing. Uh, there will be a sort of basically they want to recreate the opening of the Olympics. You know, the Olympics, the sure. massive outward-looking international competition <laughs> that brings everyone together. That, but completely inward-looking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no i mean it's really like genuinely awful and bleak and you know i know people who've whose businesses have just that's it is game over and there's loads of basically there's loads of fishermen at the moment in the uk and the fishermen were the ones that they were very excited about like brexit we have to free up british fishing people and now all the fishing people are going yeah okay all the stuff we've caught has just died in the box because we can't get it to Europe anymore. Oh, oh yeah. But, but also fishery, the fishery industry was sort of a weird wedge issue where it's for, for years, fishing rights around Europe have been this sort of this right wing sort of tabloid mm. uh, sticking point. 
almost culture war type. Like the the closest, um, Holly pointed out that it's it's quite similar to the way the coal mining industry is talked about by the Republicans here. Okay, like it's this sort of economically very small slice of the country mm. that has this sort of outweight Historical. over oversized symbolic weight to certain communities yeah it's like it's it's kind of magical and one of the big architects of brexit this guy known here as the haunted pencil um jacob <laughs> reese mogg said in the house of commons the other day he said um but the main thing is that they're british fish now and they're much happier for it <laughs> and uh and it's just incredible and one of the big issues is that the vast majority of the fish that we do catch in our territorial waters british people don't eat it right. we kind of you know we've always just operated a swap system we we think mackerel's disgusting and so we send most of it to europe and they send fish that we like anyway that's over now so it's mackerel only that's right <laughs> <laughs> um but and before we get sort of into the science stories and everything, like what what are you doing with your extra sovereignty? Well, okay, so each household receives um, sovereignty tokens, and so you get basically you get a little a little pouch is posted through your letterbox, and it has a number of sovereignty tokens depending on how British they think you are. <laughs> so I, you know, I've, I'm, I wasn't in favour of Brexit, and I'm still not. But I do come from quite a posh, old-fashioned family. So I got 17 sovereign tokens, Ooh. and you can swap those for um, a sense of ennui, <laughs> which is great. So I, for me, it's that's been a big win. It's been a huge win. Our next door neighbour's got three sovereignty tokens, and they now have to eat mackerel forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. Um, and everyone wears these pouches like hanging from their belt on the outside and they jingle when when you walk down the street you can hear someone's sovereignty that's right so you know if someone you know if someone's got lots of sovereignty not only will they have a pouch of sovereignty hanging from their belt they'll also be wearing a sovereign ring uh, which yeah. proves oh. that they are <laughs> as sovereign as possible. Uh, there's, course, a, there's delightfully some real truth in that claim. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the, the Scots have been um, wearing their sovereignty pouches for years and have That's been trying right. to tell everyone that we've had that sovereignty all along, but no one's been listening. That's right. But I, broadly speaking, much as I love my time in Scotland and love many of my Scottish friends, never trust anyone who habitually keeps a knife in their sock. You know, I'm not just, I say habitually, I mean, it, it's culturally yeah. vital to them. And I, I'm like, come on, guys. I mean, you, you, you know. You can't go to a wedding without it. You're in the States. You, you have real guns, like grown-up equipment that people are allowed to carry around and stuff. Uh, trust me, a tiny knife down someone's sock is still seen in the UK as an enormous threat. <laughs> I mean, they train yeah. the children in Scottish schools uh about what to do if someone comes in with a knife in their sock and it sit there and feel patriotic do you knit, do you knit like a, a holster into the side of the sock or is it just against your flesh and it could it's, also cut you while you're walking it's just against your flesh which is why so many scottish people lean to one side <laughs> marcus we, we like to ask our guests this before we get into the stories uh what if anything is your background in science and that has ranged from doing a degree in it to having a class you liked or hated at school to blowing stuff up in the woods with your friends to anything 
I am able to give an honest answer to this and uh, it pleases me that you've asked. So I went to um, I went to boarding school when I was seven years old, which is perfectly normal for um, people like me. <laughs> but in in our science laboratories, all of the um, you can imagine the sort of worktops. Right. So there were lots of Bunsen burners and there were lots of sinks about yep. on each table six sinks and the the plumbing system was linked this was something that you could see because the plumbing was visible underneath the um underneath the worktops mm-hmm. and so my friend puckle and i worked out that uh, oh little side fact there puckle um real name uh was related to the guy who invented the puckle gun so there you are um <laughs> we worked out that you could flood <laughs> the um plumbing system under the worktops with gas from the bunsen burner and if you put all of the plugs in apart from the one that you were flooding the system with with gas you could then seal it up and then take one plug out and throw in a match and all of the plugs would be ejected with huge force up (laughs) into the ceiling so that that i did do in science and as always you know you have to write down aims method conclusion <laughs> yeah the aims were fun method was flood it with gas conclusion i was expelled from that school true story <laughs> that's my main background in science i hope that's going to be helpful that is that is an excellent answer that's one of the finest answers to that question we've had in the years we've been doing this podcast it just seems like something out of a movie. It's too perfect. It's like a scene when someone puts a cherry bomb down a toilet and then all the toilets at the same time, like, you know, water shoots up to the ceiling. Yeah. It's like, there's no way that actually happens, but you did this equivalent thing yeah. for, for gas. And the- Good times. If, if, if only Dr. Harrison Barbette was still alive, uh, he would verify that I did, I did blow up the, the sink system. <laughs> at what age again? I, that, I was about 11. That's very precocious. I think that's uh, uh, <laughs> Andy. We've only just met, but yeah, there's a theme. <laughs> yeah, you you started fast and hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We built. I mean, we made fireworks too. We used to steal chemicals and made fireworks, but they didn't really work. Like the balance of chemicals in a proper firework is, you know, it's very specific. We do, yeah. We manage to get things to sort of smell a lot and make a lot of smoke, and occasionally burn brightly, but nothing sort of exploded. Sadly, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, the, it's surprisingly hard to actually make things that blow up, you know, with a school science lab. But like, I, I think, I remember what year it was that our teacher told us that, and then went just like, yeah, have a go, use the stuff on the desk now, and try and make something that'll explode, and just gave us ten minutes, and just nothing yeah. happened except for some. Some things changed colour a bit and some things got a bit smellier. We blew up an orange at university. Um, So I don't know in the States whether you had the same thing, but like, Matt, you'd know what I mean by a roll of caps. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so caps, like you'd put them in a cap gun and it was like a roll of tape with tiny, tiny pouches of um, gunpowder. And then when the... um, the the thing on the gun hit them they made a loud bang like a gun going off yeah and did you have andy did you have yeah, like yeah, well yeah. cap guns the caps came in two different types like i remember when we could you had the ones that were like um uh round plastic like, l- round plastic yeah. things almost looked like a shrunken version of the thing that holds uh cans together and had little little dots of 
gunpowder in each of them and it rotated and then yeah Tiny like you said the ones that were like cock a ring. yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah. then the ones that were just like a continuous piece of tape that was rolled up that had little yeah. caps that didn't eat at a regular interval along it so yeah, we, we what we did is we got the rolls of of tape caps and if you split them so basically sort of split each one by folding the paper along its um sort of along its width if you see what i mean so right. that you opened each of the pouches because everybody tried setting fire to them thinking this will be great and they'll go bang and it'll be amazing but they never did they just sort of burned slightly but if you split them all open and then folded them back on themselves to make a stick of many layers of caps about the size <laughs> of a finger we worked out that that did sort of go bang but it only really went bang if you then bound it very tightly so we used to make those and then we'd wrap them up in sellotape or string or something like that and uh, the the explosion from that was astonishing like fierce fierce and it was just a roll of caps which they i don't think they sell them anymore but we put one into an orange and i kid you not we were not able to find any of the parts of the orange after (laughs) we'd done it yeah that's impressive it was good times by the way, while you were talking as well, I looked up the puckle gun because yeah. I had never heard of such a thing, mm. and it was um, dates back to 1718. Mm. It's a primitive crew-served operated flint flintlock revolver. Yeah, that's uh, right. And um, but the, 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 James the, the, Puckle was the inventor. Yeah, and, and the puckle gun. The, also, so, I think was the machine gun. Was it not the sort of hand wound early version of the machine gun? Was also a puckle gun. I think. Yeah, it, it, it says it was one of the earliest weapons to be referred to as a machine gun. Yeah, being called such in a 1722 shipping manifest. Although mm. its operation does not match the modern use of the term, it was never used during any combat operation or war. Mm. Uh, With regret, produ- um, puckle never bought one into school either, which I always think is a bit <laughs> shitty of him. Well, they they only made a. Uh, they may may have made as as few as two guns, according to the oh. Wikipedia page. So I don't know if the Puckle family still owned one. I yeah. think it was it was more of a proof I'd... of concept than anything. <laughs> I'd like to think that they still had at least one of their two Puckle guns. <laughs> yeah, it looks really like a giant revolver, like a four or five foot long revolver, like mm. a, just a sized up handgun. Did you look up the image image search it, Matt? Yeah, well, I'm on the Wikipedia page for it right now. Oh. And then I'm seeing a right-wing, or at least a um, Second Amendment-y um, meme with a picture of a puckle gun that says that it was invented in 1718, <laughs> 73 years before the Second Amendment. This invalidates the argument that the founders couldn't envision firearms more advanced than muskets. Like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Well, I'm uh, glad it's been yeah. useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Puckle. Thank you, Puckle. Other, I mean, I can vouch... For James, my friend at school, that just a really decent guy. I mean, he blew stuff up with me, but I, he was he. There was nothing about him that made me think he'd be a gun nut. Right. It's just the standard issue adolescent pyromania that all of us yeah. have. It doesn't mean you're, yeah. you your basics. Guns yeah. in your blood. Mm-hmm. I think most people went through a blowing stuff up phase. Yeah. 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 To, I don't. I mean, I'm not trying to like uh, make generalizations, but do you know any girls, women who did? I don't know if that would have been. Yeah. It's I, I do. A gendered hobby, really? I do, but I, th- I think it is one of those things that boys get pushed more towards and encouraged to. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's that, and not. I can't imagine a time when anybody encouraged by pyromania, it just spontaneously occurred. Mm. Like, 
Yeah, it's but it's interesting. Hard I mean, I think like there's a, there is a weird gender thing. I, I have a an 18 year old son and a 15 year old daughter. I don't know whose they are, but they're in my house. Hey, <laughs> and um, uh, and there was a diff a very noticeable difference in how they played when they began independent play. And I noticed not only my son but also most of the male friends that he had compared to my daughter's female friends um and we did separate them like that uh that the boys liked destroying stuff more than the girls the girls were more about making stuff and the boys were more about breaking stuff uh, in in broad right right i mean obviously there could be exceptions but yeah. and i guess that that certainly hasn't left me <laughs> it's way easier it's weird that i didn't vote for brexit <laughs> Well, because you wanted to break the hearts of the sovereignty people. Yeah, that's right, right. Um, let's let's get into some science stories because there's some fun there's some fun things that have come in, including we've had a few fun uh, animal attack stories in recent <laughs> weeks, and this one was sent in by Justin Broad, who as so often has sent in a load of stories. I'm going to put this in the show notes as well, Marcus, so you can see it, but it should pop up there. But um, Electric eels, some electric eels have been observed coordinating attacks to zap their prey. The knife fish were thought to dine alone, but in the Amazon, hundreds hunt together. So, talking about breaking stuff and blowing stuff up. Oh, yeah. One Voltus electric eel, able to subdue small fish with an 860 volt jolt. Jolt. Wow, that was harder to say (laughs) than I thought it was. Volt jolt is scary enough. Now imagine over a hundred eels swirling about, unleashing coordinated electric attacks. Such a sight was assumed to be only the stuff of nightmares, says ScienceNews.org, at least for prey. Researchers have long thought that these eels, a type of knife fish, are solitary, nocturnal hunters that use their electric sense to find smaller fish as they sleep. I didn't know knife fish were a thing, or that they were things that overlapped with electric eels. Scottish people keep them in their socks. <laughs> um, so wait, there are t- there are let's call them gangs of yeah. knife fish, electrically charged knife fish attacking. Yes, and in, in a remote region of the Amazon, groups of over a hundred electric eels co- hunt together, curling thousands of smaller fish together to concentrate, shock, and devour the prey say, researchers in uh, the last issue of Ecology and Evolution. I feel more glad... This is hugely unexpe- glad... unexpected, says Raimundo... No, sorry Go to interrupt. It. I, it's just, I, I feel more glad than ever about what we've done to the Amazon after hearing this. <laughs> they were asking for it the whole time. I really <laughs> do. I'm like, there have been times where I've gone, I don't know about what we're doing to the Amazon, but as soon as you hear this, you think, do you know what? We, we had a point, didn't we? Yeah. Um, I've, straight after saying that and then marching off confidently into the Amazon to fuck shit up, you then uh, <laughs> slip, on, slip on a branch, fall into the river, and, uh, and as you get zapped, we see your skeleton on the inside. <laughs> right. <laughs> How many volts have to pass through a person that you can see their skeleton on the inside? Yeah. Do we know? It would be good to and, get an exact figure. I don't know. It doesn't. I don't know if the researchers covered that in this article. How many? How many of these eels you need to make that happen? It does say that fifty or more is enough to make your hair smoke. <laughs> wow! 
Yeah. Yahoo Serious taught us that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the great. You know what? It's been, I'd say it's been a good year and a half since our last Yahoo Serious reference on this podcast. It, and that, it yeah. used to come up all the time. I don't know yeah. why we've, we've been lacking our Yahoo Serious chats recently. I don't know what that Marcus, is. Marcus, was he on your radar as a child at all? Yahoo Serious? Young Einstein. Oh, oh no. Oh, he was absolutely not. I assumed export. it was a it was a search engine like the boring end of, of Yahoo. Uh no, but there was a lawsuit between Yahoo Serious and Yahoo the search engine when Yahoo the search engine first launched and I I can't remember now how it was resolved. But I do know that he he sued them. Wow. It's amazing. You know, uh, speaking of guests that we can get now that we don't have to be in the same room as them, um I bet Yahoo Serious is possible at some point. Just putting that out there into the universe. I'm just I say so. Australia's it. greatest scientist. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to be yeah, up there with the, the Bush Tucker man. I don't know if you've ever seen the Bush Tucker man. Matt, did I lose you? Matt, you still there? Oh, I'm still there. Can you hear me? Oh, oh good. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever see that? Speaking of Australian science bots, did you what? ever see the Bush Tucker man? No, no, I don't he know He was that. like an early incarnation of Steve Irwin, much slower. And he used to just eat everything that he saw. He was like a sort of human locust in a big hat. And he'd just, um, he'd just put stuff in his mouth and then always say the same thing. He goes, it's got a, got a sort of a dry, weedy taste. Uh, <laughs> but my, my favorite episode, it featured the one shop in Arnhem Land where you can get like survival gear and stuff. And he whispered to the camera and he went, yeah, at the front of that shop, you see that central beam holding it up there? I happen to know that inside there is a bee's nest. And one night I plan to come and cut that down and take the honey out of it. And you're like, yeah, then the shop will be destroyed. <laughs> it, was, it, was very, it was very, very good. It's, this load-bearing bee's nest. <laughs> yeah, just... yeah, yeah. Um, so here we go. In August 2000, Yahoo Sirius tried to sue the search engine Yahoo for trademark infringement. The case was thrown out because Sirius could not prove that he sells products or services under the name Yahoo mm. and therefore could not prove that he suffered harm or confusion due to the search engine. So, then sorry, I would think yeah. he's definitely available and, ki- and keen to work. Podcast, so don't, don't be afraid that that's going <laughs> to be I'm also problem. almost certain that we have read out that exact paragraph on more than one occasion on this show. Yeah, before. it's been years. <laughs> it has, got- it has. People have joined the show since. I'm sure. So for new listeners, that is that now you know about the law- <laughs> serious lawsuits against the search engine. So this is hugely unexpected, says Raimundo Nonato Menendez Jr., a biologist at the Chico Mendes Institute for Biodiversity Conservation in Brazil, who was not involved in the study. <laughs> it, it goes to show how very, very little we know about how electric eels behave in the wild. That was a lot of uh, description of that person's qualifications before we found out that this is just a commenter and not someone who actually did the study themselves. Yeah. Just a guy down the hall going, like, I don't know, really, that sounds good. Uh, they really drill down into it. Uh, I don't know, that sounds good. Gr- group hunting is quite rare in fish, says Carlos David DeSanta, an evolutionary biologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington. I'd never even seen more than 12 electric eels together in the field, he says. That's why he was stunned when in 2012 his colleague Douglas Baston, now a biologist at the National Institute of Amazonian Research in Manaus, Brazil, reported seeing more than 100 eels congregating and seemingly hunting together in a small lake in northern Brazil. 
Two years later, DeSantis team returned to the lake to make more detailed observations. The nearly two meter long eels lethargically lay in deeper waters during much of the day, the researchers found, but at dusk and dawn, these long streaks of black came together, swirling in unison to form a writhing circle over a hundred strong that herds thousands of smaller fish into shallower waters. After corralling the prey, smaller groups of about 10 eels unleash coordinated electric attacks that can send shock fish flying from the water. There we go. It doesn't That's say whether you can you see their skeletons or not, but they are flying <laughs> from the water. The researchers haven't yet measured the combined voltage of such attacks, but 10 volta eels firing together could, in theory, power something like 100 light bulbs, DeSantis De, De says, that then helpless floating prey make easy pickings for the massive eels. The whole ordeal lasts about two hours. Wow. Damn. That is a lot longer than I was expecting them to say. I was expecting, like, a minute. Well, yeah, the video that's playing there is 15 seconds long and is pretty descriptive of the whole process, but maybe the, the hours are like the lead up to corralling all of those tiny fish. Yeah. Um, uh, do you so think far, such Elon... aggregations have been observed in only this one lake, but DeSanta suspects that this group hunting may be advantageous in other lakes and rivers with large shoals of small fish. Much of the eel's range remains underexplored by scientists, so DeSanta and colleagues are launching a citizen science project with indigenous communities to identify more spots where many eels live together. Has Elon Musk considered the possibility of somehow harnessing up to 100 eels at once and seeing just how far he can get a Tesla into space? Oh, yeah. <laughs> or wherever else. I mean, really, if these, if these fish are capable of lighting up a load of light bulbs, just 10 of them doing like 100 light bulbs or something. There's no reason at all they couldn't power my car, except that my car takes petrol. But, you know, right. apart from that. another car. Yeah, a picture yeah. of a Back to the Future yeah. 2 kind of thing where you open up and there's a tank of just swirling eels. You just throw in some <laughs> Marty, thumb. we need another 100 eels. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much how they work, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Are I, they like, can one of these eels hurt a human i'd say it i'd say you'd feel it yeah for sure because yeah. it, it says there it, it said there that 10 of these eels could power 100 light bulbs so but presumably one how... of them could power 10 light bulbs i don't know what power means exactly it, whether it's just like makes it flash briefly but you you definitely feel it it's gotta yeah. be that i mean the total amount of energy they're gonna it's 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 like it doesn't it basically operate like a capacitor where it can generate a huge voltage, but only discharge that over a very sh short amount of time. Yeah, and I, I presume it must be DC power as well, so it wouldn't well, sort yeah. of give you a heart attack in the same way, but it would... Hmm. I mean, I think even DC can... Wait, what, what was... Uh, so Edison was a proponent of DC, and he was killing things with AC to make Tesla look like a dum-dum? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Tesla was AC, but either and one so he was... You. so. Um, Edison was electrocuting elephants to show how dangerous AC is. Yeah, but I mean, lightning bolts aren't AC, and they'll they'll do a good job of killing you. So yeah, uh, Angus and Brian Johnson bought bought both sides together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they don't get enough credit for their no. unity. They were t some of the great healers in science <laughs> in the science of electricity. Um, that was and the that's that is actually how they managed to get someone. Um, to be shaken all night long. Yeah. Um, in the first instance, just AC. They managed to shake until around nine thirty. Um, <laughs> DC only quarter to eight. 
but with both all night long. Incredible yeah. scenes. And the fast machine that kept its motor clean was a Tesla. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and it was a fast machine. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. The speed zero to it got sixty up to. in like two point two or something. <laughs> Our Aussie listeners will like that or hate it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully both. Yeah, yeah. But so, uh, I, I found this this BBC news science story that I think I'm going to throw in here, partly just because of the opening line. Uh, I'm going to put that in the show notes there. It's about butterflies and what we have recently discovered about their their movement in their wings. I didn't know that butterfly flight was mysterious. I knew bees were a bit mysterious. Yeah, but... no, butterfly flight is absolutely like, like they don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those. It's It's like, look at this is absurd. The size of the wing, the fact that it doesn't really bend and all the rest of it, the butterfly itself is going, yeah, I don't know, mate. Not yep. a clue. Well, now now the butterfly knows if they can read this paper. But th- this article starts off with, the fluttering flight patterns of butterflies have long inspired poets but baffled scientists. Yeah. But, but no more. Poets are going to be fucked from this moment on because <laughs> it's been solved. <laughs> Your love is as mysterious, no, scratch that, as explicable as a butterfly's <laughs> wing. <laughs> yeah. For as it was written in the uh, Royal Society Publishing.org paper, uh, researchers have struggled to understand how these delicate creatures can fly with their large but inefficient wings. But this I'd love st- to think that those researchers would be like, mm, we didn't struggle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, no, to be it honest, took we, some effort, but we didn't struggle with it. Yeah, if I'm honest, we did it at a canter. It was uh, <laughs> wasn't grunting. We did it in our lunch break. <laughs> now, so this new study shows that butterflies evolved an effective way of cupping and clapping their wings to generate thrust. The scientists say this ability helps them avoid dangerous predators. Flying species have evolved various methods of evading death. Some have developed powerful and efficient wings to speed them to safety. Others survive by tasting awful when eating. But what about the slow-moving, meandering butterfly? The problem for these creatures is that they have unusually large wings relative to their body size, which are aerodynamically inefficient for flight. Back in the 70s, researchers developed a theory that their big wings allowed the butterfly to clap them together on the upstroke to power their takeoff. But no one has shown how this works in natural flying conditions. Now Swedish scientists using a wind tunnel and high-speed cameras have captured the butterfly's unique flying skill. The wings are behaving in quite an interesting way, says co-author Dr. Per Henningsen from Lund University in Sweden. I like that Per Henderson has qualified it with quite interesting. I right. mean, don't, don't hold your breath, guys. Yeah, we He's put Scandinavian. We put butterflies in a tube and eh, it, was, it was all right. <laughs> I mean, this is a Scandinavian scientist. They... There's only so excited they allow themselves to get. Sure. (laughs) They're they're among the more stoic of the science community. (laughs) If this was a Brazilian scientist, it would be another thing entirely. (laughs) They swap places with the eels from before. So the the leading and trailing edge, says Dr. Per Henningsen, are meeting before the central part, forming this pocket shape. We think this sort of behavior is going to improve the clap because it forms an air pocket between the wings, which, when the wings collapse, that makes the jet even stronger and more efficient. Oh, okay. There's a picture here of a butterfly in a wind tunnel. 
that's also an album it, isn't it it must be someone must have released a butterfly in a wind tunnel um, <laughs> it seems like a 90s i like sort of, yeah. i like the fact that their flight is being described as a series of claps because if you've ever seen a lot of butterflies take off at once, it would be great, wouldn't it, if you could actually hear a round of applause. Uh, <laughs> just releasing a whole lot of butterflies at the end of your performance, just yeah. to really feel good about yourself. Butterfly in a wind tunnel also just sounds like something someone would say about a really weak punch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he hits like a butterfly in a wind tunnel. Uh, like a he's butterfly. got the personality like of a, a butterfly in a wind tunnel. <laughs> Um, as well as recording slow motion video of the butterflies in flight, the researchers constructed two simple pairs of mechanical clappers to test their ideas. One was rigid, the other flexible and more akin to the butterfly wings observed in the wind tunnel tests. The team found that the flexible wings dramatically increased the force created by the clap. It also improved the efficiency by 28%, which the authors describe as a huge amount for a flying animal which leads them to conclude that the large wings and cupped clapping action were an evolutionary advantage for butterflies when faced with predators. If you're a butterfly that is able to take off quicker than the others, that gives you an obvious advantage, says Per Henningsen. It is a strong selective pressure because then it's a matter of life and death. I don't... But, uh, I mean, a lot of how they evade predators, as I understand it, not all species of butterflies, but quite a few of them do it by making their... Uh, when their wings are open making it look like they are a predator um yeah they have like eyes on the things that look like eyes on their wings yeah 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 and i there is a type of butterfly and i've seen the picture with a kind of like two quite uh, dark eyes and then like a black line down either side and they look almost exactly like rudy giuliani I love it. That's going to be his legacy. It's so. It's oh, so what great. the running hair dye? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. that and four seasons forever. Both of. But also, like, what's the the hair dye thing? Is it like a hair thickener? Like, what was it, and why would he be using it? Like, he's pretty bald. Like, why does it also matter to have the hair on the side of your head colored? It's just the whole thing is just so so strange. I I believe it was like one of the comb through dies like Grecian 2000 or something right. like that which G-O-H. is like really low end for a person in his position but then I don't know I guess if you've worked for Trump for a while like you'd lose a perspective, perspective. on self-esteem <laughs> <laughs> yes and self-image and just everything yeah just like some of the choices you'd make would be like I didn't used to do this but here we all are the, th- there's the also just war. like a general old man thing as well where yeah. I th- I think it's just a certain proportion of people hit a certain age and then they just either don't give a fuck or or just sort of again lose perspective of what looks good or what is a sensible thing to wear. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like drawing lipstick around your lips or something like it's just <laughs> right. it's lost all. Yeah. Um yeah, and he is clearly someone who's lost like was he, he you know there's there's definitely an uh, an increased level of lunacy compared oh, to Oh yeah. Oh so much a massive massive increase in lunacy when he threw both arms in the air when <laughs> when the fact that that result was announced while he was doing the press conference at yeah, four oh. seasons and he went he went who's who's announced it and someone went all of them and he literally went oh 
all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like as if by saying it in a sarcastic voice, it suddenly made it not a big deal. Yeah, 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 exactly. By the way, this Uh, is our first recording. We're going to have to fire you. Ooh, you're firing me from my job. (laughs) It's so Homer Simpson. I wonder, I bet that, I bet genuinely that there is a butterfly called the Giuliani butterfly and one that looks like his haunted face. Andy, do you, want to, do you want to do a different story? Sure. Let me look at what I had queued up here. Justin Broad had a couple different stories. We could want to talk about direwolves or psilocybin or SpaceX. Uh, did you say SpaceX? <laughs> I never thought about how much SpaceX sounds like SpaceX, which makes sense because Elon named all the models of Tesla after you know they spell out sexy. Oh, I did really? not know that. The but... Model S, the Model oh. 3, which is like Leet speak for E, the Model X, the Model Y, like his cars spell sexy. It's so dorky. But uh... Science will never fully get to grips with whether Elon Musk is a terrible, terrible asshole <laughs> or brilliant. Well, he's the richest man in the world. And by Mr. Show's Worthington's Law, he is a good person. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, is he richer than Bezos? No, uh, briefly, Tesla he was. There was oh, a, okay. uh, I think he's gone back down again now, but there was a there was a spike in the value of Tesla stock that well, pushed him pan- above. Yeah, the pandemic has been good to Bezos. Really good. Yeah, well, to yeah, you, but, weirdly, but yeah. You can yeah, really see who's making money just by... Um, so we, we're getting into award season now, where and where in previous years... I would have DVDs of every film and TV show landing on my doorstep unnecessarily mm. uh, in a vain hope that I will then vote for them for the smaller awards that I'm able to vote for that would then persuade the people for the bigger awards to vote for them too. Uh, and this year, it's nothing except for Netflix, Amazon, and occasionally Apple, which yeah. are the, the three huh. that you can get online anyway. <laughs> like, it's yeah, just... Yeah. I, I can now... I can now watch any Netflix movie that has come out in the last year on DVD or also on Netflix. I cannot be alone in wishing in Trump's last day in office that he pardoned the Tiger King and we got another series of that. Uh, Yeah, he did not. That was a big deal. Did you see um, he, the Tiger King, uh, he, um, he had a, a ludicrous stretch limo parked outside the jail ready to pick him up. Then <laughs> You're try- kidding! Awesome. I, like I fully said that as a joke. He genuinely was like pleading with Trump. Oh no! It was me. it was on the cards. It yeah. was it was very much on oh, the cards. Oh man, that's hilarious! It was like that's how about. insane all this shit has got. That like, yeah, yeah. This would be this would be a worthwhile use of my final day in office. Holy <laughs> shit! What I know he he uh, pardoned Lil Wayne, but what for? Do you know if there were actually pending charges against Lil Wayne? Crimes yeah. against music. Right. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, Joe Exotic. I blanked on his name there for a second. Uh, <laughs> As if that's his name. <laughs> that's all right. Several of his own husbands have blanked on his name. Yeah. Yeah. It's from the Hampton New- Exotics. Right. right. <laughs> God, Here what we a go. charismatic guy to have converted so many. Like, aren't most of his partners like formerly straight guys who just got like entranced by, by this guy? I think less entranced by him uh, than by meth. meth methamphetamine, yeah. That's a, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, I just put a link there in the show notes to a picture of the, the limo that was parked outside the jail. Oh, amazing. amazing. Oh, Joe. Who funded the, the limo? 
Could you one of the tigers? Yeah. Right. God. Um, it's okay. also a Florida. I think you know. I don't think it's the most expensive thing to get a massive stretch limo. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's one of the three but, vehicles that are acceptable in that part of the country. Andy, did did you offer direwolves? Yeah, that was a story sent in by. Let's see who that was from. Veronica Legler, Legler. Uh, okay, yeah. well, uh, because I've only heard of a direwolf from watching the historical documentary <laughs> Game of Thrones. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, here I'll put the link to this in the show notes. So you guys can check it. Out. Are they real? They are. Direwolves. They are real. Um, wow. And it's not just a description of an absolutely terrible wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Wolf in a bad situation. Uh, No, it's an extinct species of wolf, which served as inspiration for a mythical creature in the popular TV show Game of Thrones. Uh, Had little in common with the gray wolves that roam North America today, new research has found, known as Canis Deerus, meaning fearsome dog. It had been thought that dire wolves were simply a beefier version of the gray wolf. However, a new study published in the journal Nature has revealed just how different they really were. The prehistoric carnivores roamed North America until they were extinct, until they went extinct nearly uh, 13,000 years ago. Dire wolf fossils are among the most common recovered at the, at the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles. Again, the, huh. La, the La Brea Tar Pits, which is Spanish for the, the Tar Tar Pits. <laughs> um, the going narrative has been that gray and dire wolves were very closely related, like sister or cousin lineages, or perhaps the same animal. Lead study author Angela Perry, an archaeologist at Durham University in the UK, told CNN via email, We were pretty comfortable with that assessment for 150 years, as that's what the similarities in their skeleton suggested. Now the genetics have revealed that they are only very distantly related, having split from each other around 6 million years ago. And for the first time... I, oh, so go ahead. Sorry, no, this, just, this isn't, I suppose, in some ways a directly related question, but I was just curious between the two of you, what is the maximum age of of a a male of of a man wearing a sweatshirt with a wolf on it that you would trust (laughs) (laughs) the reason i ask is you know like if you see a kid in a wolf sweatshirt you're like hey cool sweatshirt kid but there's definitely a cutoff age and i think it's 19 i'd say that's true but what if it's being worn ironically Mm. does that give anybody any like if they're also wearing like way too short pants, well then I oh, trust, okay. I trust oh, that's them, a but lot of also fun. ironically, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a lot of fun. I, I think also though I will say, I think it's actually an age range because I think once once that man hits, I'm gonna say seventy four. I think over yeah. that point, a wolf sweatshirt is just like yeah, he likes wolves. <laughs> or it's literally just the last place he was taken <laughs> to a wolf sanctuary. and uh, Yeah, he took know. his grandkids to see some wolves, and now mm. he's just got a wolf sweatshirt. Because yeah, yeah. one of them said, I like wolves. And he's like, well... <laughs> they get... What- you know, like, wolves get a fair go, I feel. You know, like, the, what they've done in, in Yellowstone, I believe it's Yellowstone, when they reintroduced the wolves, like, it literally changed the shape of the land. Have you seen that that little film? Yeah, no. I, I it's a very I cool film, but thing. I've seen. A, I read an article about it a while back. Yeah, it's stu- just just quickly. The wolves prevented the uh, grazing animals from moving en masse to the edge of the river and breaking riverbanks. They didn't stay still for too long because there were wolves knocking around. So the edges of the river 
became stronger and then the river kind of meandered as it's supposed to rather than just going in a fast flowing straight line which meant new grassland came and then new insects came into the grassland and that brought other mammals and all the rest of it like it was extraordinary and so they've had a lot of positive press and then there's stuff like in a wolf pack apparently the older wolves like the kind of disabled ones go at the front so the rest of the um socialist left-wing wolf pack know how fast to move and stuff like that like they get in a way quite a positive press and yet still if i saw an adult man wearing a wolf sweatshirt i'd be like what are you after (laughs) (laughs) well yeah when you said can you trust them and i'm like well it depends on what you're at can i trust them to give me wolf facts like probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah could you trust them in an apocalyptic situation right. where you're hold, you're holed up in a shopping mall? And I'd be like, absolutely not. This no. this guy has a crossbow. <laughs> I'm trying to see if we might have... That Yellowstone story sounds familiar. We might have covered it, but it might have been years ago. And uh, we can't be expected to remember what we said before. But, but you well, there was... Were- there was a lot of talk about it. There's a, a British journalist called George Monbiot who's very, very keen. He's a, an environmentalist and he's very, very keen on that story. It's, it's via him that, that I read it. But he's keen that we should introduce wolves into the UK. And I don't, I'm not so sure that's a smart move. We're a densely packed country. Yeah, I don't think people really appreciate how how middle of nowhere there is in America and Australia. That's right. We've, we've talked about this before on the show that just there, there is nothing. The UK does not have middle of nowhere in any no, sense. There's, no. there's no way you can be in Britain where if you walk in any direction for more than about half an hour, you won't be in someone's garden. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, they re they reintroduced beavers into Scotland and they were eaten in under a fortnight. <laughs> I mean, they're just gone and not by animals like by scottish people right. um <laughs> just gone These i don't know i think bears and wolves would be a lot of fun to have in the uk again i, I think we used to have them i'm sure we did because they were they're on continental europe and that used to, yeah. they used to be attached and an American one was introduced to London in the mid 1980s, I think, as was captured in the John Landis <laughs> documentary. That's right. Of- That's right. Yeah, I swam with a polar bear once. Really? Yeah, true story. Uh, uh, so I many years ago I sailed from um, Greenland. Sorry, from Norway to Greenland, from um, Svalbard to um, Scoresby Sund uh, on a climate research vessel. That's and right. When, I remember you doing that. That was like a it was like a program to get people in arts and culture to talk more about environmental stuff, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like if you're going to talk about it, go and do the research firsthand. Uh, so we we were taking like temperature and salinity readings and looking at ice and stuff like that. Anyway, when we got to Greenland, we were on the east coast of Greenland where really no one is. And yeah. one of the filmmakers on the boat said, oh, it'd be really cool to get footage of one of us swimming between icebergs. And I was like, well, I'll do it. That sounds great. And I put on this like thick survival suit thing and I start climbing down the side of the boat. There's a film of it somewhere. And you can hear the filmmaker going, oh, cool, there's a seal in the water. Um, and I was thinking, oh, this is brilliant because this is in the Arctic, not the Antarctic. So there's no dangerous seals there or anything, you know, no leopard seals. And I push away from the boat. And as I push away, you hear him go, oh, shit, no, it's a bear. 
and uh, it was a it, yeah, it was a, a mother polar bear swimming across the fjord. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was. Two things happened. One, I got back on the boat incredibly quickly, and the other was that I filled that survival suit with shit in under a second. <laughs> just uh, absolute panic but it was it was extraordinary and tragic so we kind of watched this mother bear with two cubs on her back swim across the fjord which should by that time of year have been frozen that's she was looking for an ice floe to hunt from and then she climbed out on the other side and you could really clearly see when she was wet just how thin she was like looked like a kind of like a greyhound and then she shakes her fur fur and she looked like a like a proper polar bear again and kind of climbed up the peak to the next fjord to see if there was ice there. It was like genuinely from a movie heartbreaking, you know? Oh man. Yeah. It should have had um, Morgan Freeman explaining what was going on. (laughs) Or at least some bottles of Coke. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, I I remember that because then you uh, shortly afterwards, you were on question time and were able to sort of, argue yeah. <laughs> argue from some level of authority about climate change <laughs> yeah which but, was exactly what the trip was for yeah but the bbc uh, unfortunately have this thing uh, <laughs> where they've misunderstood the notion of balance so if they have someone who's got direct experience or research on a subject they then find instead of like someone with a counter opinion literally just a lunatic uh you know with a bag full of shells going yeah i'll, I'll hold the counter position <laughs> yeah. and they're they're always much more exciting to watch so um yeah oh well yeah that's uh, that's such a bummer about when people are like big fans of always both sides like well some things don't have you know like should you be obliged when you say that this there was a plane crash and 500 people died someone else should come on and say no nobody died like what's the other yeah. side of yeah, some yeah. things just are and- yeah and and also you know there's there is there is debate in the in climate change climate science and you know the or evolution or any of those things and the the debate is exactly the mechanism and exactly the rate and what the possible solutions are you know that there is vehement debate between real scientists about that but you know the same way there's like there's debate about the best way to deal with covid but you don't bring on someone who says uh i am a wizard and it can be cured with my (laughs) special cuddle (laughs) it's just yeah you know you there there is correct about there there is legitimate debate and legitimate balance if you really want to turn everything into a he said she said kind of uh, the, the uh, argument for the defense and the argument um, and so on. But like, it just, yeah, it, it it's maddening. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's where prosecution science, was the word I couldn't think of there for a second. S- well, science, science and democracy um, uh, are problematic bedfellows. That's, that's just true. Um, there's a little bit more about the dire wolf. If you guys want to yeah. hear. Just yeah. Tell us more. So yeah, for the first time, experts sequenced DNA from five direwolf fossils, which were found in Wyoming, Idaho, Ohio, and Tennessee. They date back to over 50,000 years ago. And analysis showed that unlike many dog-like species that seemingly migrated between North America and Eurasia over time, direwolves evolved solely in North America for millions of years. And their stark divergence from gray wolves, researchers believe, placed them in an entirely different genus. I said, it's surprising because we've thought they were closely related for so long. Their skeletons and teeth are very similar. It's clearly a case of convergent evolution, Perry said. We also learned that they were so genetically distinct from each other uh, that there is no evidence they could interbreed or produce offspring and produce offspring. 
Um, dire wolves overlapped with coyotes and gray wolves in North America for some 10,000 years before their extinction, but still there's no evidence that they interbred with these species. Wow. Yeah. But they're gone now, right? They are gone. They've been gone. Wait, was it 30,000 years? Oh, no, wait. They went extinct 13,000 years ago. Ha, yeah. So says you. <laughs> I'm going to be the balance in that story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if, if you were care to draw your attention for a second to my sweater. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. They were ill-equipped to adapt to the changing conditions at the end of the Ice Age due to their evolutionary differences. What, a massive change in climate wiped them out? <laughs> if only there was some warning from history. <laughs> So unlike real direwolves, the ones in Game of Thrones uh, were shown to be the size of small horses and associated with the coldest environments in Westeros. In the show, a litter of six direwolf's pups, direwolf pups were adopted by the Stark children, whose house sigil, sigil? I didn't watch the show. Is that of a direwolf? Yeah, wolf? sigil. Sigil. Yeah. I just outed myself as, uh, I mean, who cares? But that was just a show that, like, I think I watched one episode and it didn't grab me. Then it's like, well, it's already five seasons in. I can't invest yeah the time it's too to much suddenly i i listen i've had three three attempts at watching the sopranos i don't think people should be shamed at, at, at having failed to connect with a piece of entertainment yeah yeah you know it's it's fine i i just i cannot get the hang of the sopranos i don't like mobster stuff in general it just never well really me neither and this me. is the thing yeah. i mean the irishman what a slog i saw that in a theater and it was you know over three hours and i was just like angry by the end of it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, um, Matt, do you have anything else for yeah, us? Yeah, I think I think we've got time to squeeze in one more sure. story. Now, now tech things seem to be. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they're solid now. Behaving. <laughs> well, well, we've got a few little options. We could we could stick with the animal world. There's a. There's a story here that found also on the BBC News site that ocean pollutants have a negative effect on male fertility. But that might be another sad story since we've already been talking about various ways we've been ruining the world. Hmm. Or we could go for a uh, we could go for a story that Justin Braw sent in about psilocybin. What is that? That that's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From Cypost.org. I'm. I, I'm mildly suspicious of no fizzpost.org. Is this is this a legitimate website? It looks legitimate. We'll see. <clears throat> let's see what it links to. This is this. I haven't pre-read this article, so let's let's see where we end up. Psilocybin produces an immunology-related genetic response in the prefrontal cortex of pig brains. There's a bit of a word salad there. Wait, <clears throat> they've been giving magic mushrooms to pigs. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Which is you know risky because they might think that they can fly. And uh, <laughs> that's how the Pink Floyd album cover came to be. <laughs> um, actually, it probably was. Eh? There's a pretty good chance Storm Thorgerson took a load of shrooms and went, yeah, you know that whole flying pig thing? I believe we can do it. You know the, <laughs> st- you know the story with that, right? I um, do not. The, the, the pig is, is, is name is algae or algernon the pig that's photographed on the cover of pink floyd's record animals between two of the chimney stacks at the battersea power station on the first day that they went to take those shots for the album cover um algae broke his moorings and the raf were scrambled because an enormous pig with heavy metal wires hanging from beneath him uh, set off across london 
Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so on the second day, you can see all of this. Um, there, there is a, a marksman uh, stationed uh, beneath the pig, ready to shoot it if it breaks free again. What a threat, man! Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, Great album right. too. By the way, while yeah. we've been talking, I've I've just looked at the article that is linked to from this article, the actual paper, and it looks legit. It's it's from departments that are part of Copenhagen University of Copenhagen, which is a real university that's proper mm-hmm. and everything. Sure. So I feel comfortable about this one now. Thanks. Is the university in Christiania? Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh have we talked we've talked about that on the show before years I back so i've been to it the, twice uh, oh you have been there haven't you yeah. yeah it's still it's still pretty cool christiania you know it's yeah still like when you go through it you're like well, i don't know this is this is all right i'm glad i don't live here but this is okay <laughs> uh, i guess you- it's like chuck e cheese right yeah it's, it's exactly that it's just a nice place to leave your kids on their birthday and you just know they'll be safe <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was there, God, I, I was going to say recently, but now it was over a year ago because that I just lost track of time. But mm. doing some shows with friend of the show, Simon Talbot. Mm. Uh, and a lot of fun they were too. It was, I, I did enjoy that. Love Copenhagen. But So, so the, but it, it's the Copenhagen people who've been given pigs shrooms. Apparently so. So psilocybin does not appear to severely impact gene expression according to a new study published in european neuropsycho psychopharmacology but a psychedelic mm. substance which is found in quote magic mushrooms I, I, okay th- this is how you know it's a real article because they put the uh the word magic in quotes there <laughs> just just they you know like they're not really magic they they're magic just like they are what what people would colloquially call magic mushrooms but we're a serious you- article do you have the same magic mushrooms in the states as we have in the UK? Presumably, do you know? what would be I, different? I think so, but I don't know if cuz I don't know if the same ones grow wild because cuz that is a thing. Like I I I don't know enough about mushrooms to ever consider doing this, but I know some people would just pick them naturally in like wild in the field and just yeah, like, so, oh, so pre pre rehab, I lived in the west country um in in devon in in the uk and like yeah i mean shrooms were plentiful you could literally just go out and and just pick them uh wild as long as you knew what they looked like and they were pretty easy to identify they were kind of gray and short and had that crucially they have a kind of a nipple on the top that kind of identifies them as a magic mushroom and we used to take really vast quantities of them (laughs) What I would say is if uh, I, I don't drink or take any drugs or anything like that anymore um, uh, because I'm an addict, but my primary addiction is an eating disorder, uh, compulsive overeating disorder. So like edible drugs were a huge <laughs> problem for me. It's yeah, but- really the, like the worst combination. Oh, particularly because it's, it's not one that suppresses your appetite. No, yeah, not quite the at opposite. all. Yeah, yeah, not at all. I Wait, was ravenous mushrooms? and just had more mushrooms. Mushrooms don't suppress your appetite. No. Oh, I thought they did. No, it's the well, sort of it's the sort of amphetamine and you know uppers that do that. If they have strychnine in them, as as I believe the ones we used to take sometimes did, that definitely suppresses your appetite. <laughs> oh, no. Um, mm. but it is. 
So, quote, magic mushrooms. They might produce lasting changes to the expression of a few immune-related genes in the brain. It's study author Jeet Musknudsen, who's a professor at the University of Copenhagen and chair of the Neurobiology Research Unit at Rigsholpspitalet, I hope I haven't butchered that too badly, said, it is really intriguing that just a single psychedelic dose of psilocybin has such profound long-lasting effects on people's personality and mood. We wanted to understand the mechanism behind this effect because it could be key to understanding the drug's effects in general. So in this study, which examined brain tissue from pigs, the researchers first conducted tests to establish the proper dose to produce psychoactive effects in the animals. Pigs were used because their brains are anatomically similar to the brains of humans. Knudsen and her colleagues then administered a psychoactive dose of psilocybin to 12 pigs, while a separate group of 12 pigs received inert saline injections. Half of the pigs were euthanized one day after the administration of psilocybin, while the rest were euthanized one week later. An analysis of prefrontal cortex tissue revealed that 19 genes were differentially expressed one day after this administration, but only three genes were, genes rather, were differ, differentially expressed in the brain tissue one week later. The observation was unexpected, given the profound and lasting effects that had been observed after a single dose of psilocybin, the researchers said. When you euthanize a pig in order to study its brain... Do you know whether you can legit just eat the rest of the pig? That's a good point. I don't know. I, do... I like. I'm a big fan of nose to tail eating. I'm like, if you, you know, I'm not vegetarian or anything. So if you kill something, you should try to eat as much of it as you possibly can. Don't leave any bits. Right. right. Have a go. Eat the hooves. Eat the nose. The snout. You know, eat as much as you possibly can. And I do think, like, if you're euthanizing trippy pigs to have a look at their brain, I really, really hope that they had some crackling and some loin of pork and some ribs and all of that kind of stuff. And that they yeah. didn't trip the balls when they ate that bacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trippy bacon, man. Yeah, but, um, yeah I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I do know that, you know, I feel less bad that they were euthanizing pigs that had been given a sense of oneness with the universe first. <laughs> sure, sure. It just yeah, puts yeah. everything in perspective. Yeah. Well, yeah. what about the pigs that had only been given the saline? Well, that's harsh. Uh, which I have to say, I think is pretty unnecessary to interfere with those ones at all. Yeah, but you know? you know, maybe they were salting them to eat them. Who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> that's really brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Knudsen told Cypost that there were surprisingly few changes to be observed in the brain 24 hours and seven days after a single dose of psilocybin. Immune-related genes constituted the largest group of genes impacted one week after the psilocybin administration, suggesting that the long-lasting effects of the psychedelic substance might be related to neuroinflammation. The researchers wrote, Neuroinflammation is now recognized as key players in psychiatric diseases, such as depression, with positive outcomes of treatment with anti-inflammatory compounds. Scientists first proposed in 2018 that psychedelic substances act as an anti-inflammatory agent via the activation of the serotonin 2A receptor, which is known to play a key role in regulating immune function. Mm. But there is currently very little research establishing a link between psychedelic drugs and neuroinflammation. Knudsen and her colleagues cautioned that, quote, the ability of psilocybin to influence neuroinflammation remains to be further tested. And in addition, we only looked at two time points and cannot say anything about changes that occur outside these time points. Hmm. But still uh, seems like maybe a positive, uh, but do they know more about 
those genes that were differently expressed, is that all related to immune stuff or because 19 seems like a lot? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what is a lot of genes in this I, situation. Yeah, I guess that's, mm. I really don't have a good like, intuitive concept of what any of this means. But um, yeah, I'm glad the pigs had a fun, fun day or two. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the most important takeaway from this thing is that, you know, pigs often have a hard time in these research laboratories and it's nice to just give them, just give them a treat from time to time. Yeah, just give them something. Absolutely. It's not like they can have bacon once a week. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, you I don't go, know. Oh, yeah, can. bacon. Yeah, pigs. I don't think pigs are too fussy about stuff like that. Do they experiment with different music playing at the same time as well? Right. <laughs> Ironically, playing Pink Floyd for them as the, yeah. the pigs. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. that they're flying. I want to believe that the researchers, like as they're giving them the, uh, the doses, are like, don't worry, this will help you deal with your... Um, end of life issues. The pig's like, end of life? What? Like, oh, you don't know. Oh, yeah, but this will help. Yeah. Simon! Don't mention the history on the end of life, hey. Marcus, thanks for sticking with us through multiple tech issues and crashes. Hey, listen, man, the tech issues are all coming from my end. I can only assume this is a Brexit thing. Although I did... I should, probably should have said actually. I did. We've switched to a green energy provider, which is a hundred eels. In, oh. um, yeah, no, it's a hundred eels in did a bucket. Did you forget to dangle the prey in front of the eel tank? Yes, I did, and I. Recording. I'm starting to think that that might have been what this was. Marcus. But no, I know, I know, but look, the eel system is new to to a lot of us, and. Um, you know, was this part well, of uh, Boris Johnson's selling point? Was a hundred eels in every pot? Sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And my internet, the actual internet, uh, the information, the data is carried by a butterfly with terrible wings. <laughs> <laughs> so that may be it. But no, look, thanks so much for having me, guys. Mate, I'm well, sorry, my internet has has made this so um, odd. But what well, a delight to talk with you. Well, thank you. How can I, where can our listeners find you and the various things you're doing right now? Oh, that's nice. Well, uh, so my wife and I do uh, a live show with Always Be Comedy every Tuesday night called Tuesday Night Club, uh, which is fun. And then, I don't know, like, yeah, just, you know, like the places comedians go now. Like, I, I'm absolutely at the stage I would sell anything. So, uh, like, uh, you, I, where listeners in the states will see me next is advertising the NRA, uh, <laughs> hap- and and happily, by the way, like I'm I'm definitely at the point where any moral qualms I had about ways to make money have long since disappeared. Um, Bring back the puckle gun, and, and then your jazz FM <laughs> show as well, which you probably oh uh, yeah 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 absolutely yeah I have a I have a show called Family Trees on on Jazz FM that you can listen to anywhere in the world I believe through the Jazz FM app where I uh, uh, well for example this week's show is all about Professor Longhair and next week is all about Mary Lou Williams so it's oh. good man it's really good nice I, I should tune in when, when do you can, is that archived as well or do you have to listen yeah to it is yeah 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 no they're all uh, it, the show goes out in the uk on sunday evenings at nine o'clock but it's all it's all archived and uh 
Yeah, it's been it's been really cool. Like I, I take a jazz artist and then um, find someone they worked with and then someone that person worked with and someone that person worked with and make like this family tree and then try and go all the way around the houses until I link back to the original artist. And it kind of scoops up a load of music that you wouldn't otherwise have expected to find associated with that artist. And yeah, it's been a, it's a genuinely been keeping me sane since the pandemic started. It's great, man. Oh, that's great. I'm going to tune into that for sure. I've never yeah. heard of Professor Longhair, but I'm looking at his Wikipedia and I'm fascinated. So I got to check. That out. Oh man, Professor Longhair, like w- without Fess, uh, funk music, I'm sure would have evolved, but in a very, very different form. Like oh. he, he changed the way people play pianos. Interestingly, uh, he assembled a piano for himself from kind of a busted piano he found out in the street in New Orleans. And a fair few of the keys didn't work, which meant his playing style was much more experimental and interesting. He was like, okay, well, I can't play the note that I would like to play there. <laughs> what can I do? So, yeah necessity is the mother of invention yeah. you know and yeah it's great i love it you can find mm. uh and also Mar- at marcus briggs on uh twitter right yeah if you want to see an absolutely furious englishman just losing his shit on a daily basis about how bad brexit genuinely is <laughs> do do go on my twitter page where where those rants are interrupted once a week by a lot of black and white pictures of old jazz musicians <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find us as always at Probably Science uh, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. ProbablyScience.com is our website where also we publish the show notes and our PayPal and Patreon links. And ProbablyScience at gmail.com is our email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you'd like us to cover. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Take it easy. Look after yourselves. You too.